0: Well, welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show, exposing the existential threats to America and discussing the news of the day. Uh, Joining us is Rick Hess, uh, Frederick Hess. We're going to talk about his new book, The Great School Rethink. Rick Hess is director of policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He writes Education Week's Rick Hess straight up blog and is a senior contributor to Forbes. All right, let's get into The Great School Rethink. Our guest is Rick Hess. Why do we need a Great School Rethink?
1: Uh, You know, because we've been doing the things that Horace Mann taught us to do for the better part of two centuries. And I don't know how well it worked in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, But today, with what our kids need, with the workforce we have, with the way it fails to take advantage of tools we've built, it's just nowhere close to getting the job done for kids and
0: families. Is that because we're using an old system? I mean, is that do we lay the blame on Horace Mann or our failure to improve on him? Or, I mean, he he had a lot right. I mean, he had a big task, right? <laughs> yeah, un, un, unify a country, right? Yeah, his, yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: he had a lot right. He had a lot wrong. His anti Catholic thing was, I think, a oh,
0: problem. yeah. I remember <laughs> that. I should remember <laughs> that, especially. Uh,
1: but, um, uh, no, no. You know, I mean, it, it's, you know, what Horace Mann's task was, and the task of anybody, uh, I think, in the history of this country is to solve the problems of their era. And what Horace Mann did was he was trying to build uh, schoolhouses staffed with cheap labor, where kids would become literate, reading the King James Bible. And that was, you know, you got to give them his props. That was impressive work for the 1830s and 1840s. Um, What we're asking of schools today is fundamentally different. Um, The labor force we have today, all of these women who had no other prospects Uh, So that we could count on them to be cheap labor for schools. That's no longer the reality. Yet, as you go around America's school districts, they recruit and hire and treat teachers very much as if we're still in the world of the 1950s. Uh, We have tools at our disposal that were unimaginable, forget Horace Mann, that were unimaginable to folks like you and me in the 1990s. And so it's not that there's anything wrong with what he did, but it's a little bit like if you said, well... Why would we need to run a car company any different than Henry Ford ran it in 1909? Are you saying Henry Ford wasn't a bright guy? No. But anybody's job is to build an organization, to deliver a service, uh, to serve their clients in their world. And one of the problems is we have had trouble reimagining or reinventing our education to meet today's challenges with the tools at our disposal in the country we live in right now.
0: Okay, but we don't want to lose sight of larger largest goals, which may be perennial right exactly. which may be, uh you know, I always think of Canadian writer Robertson Davies. He said the purpose of education is to save your soul and enlarge your mind. Now, I know a lot of people wouldn't agree with that, but i've I've always liked that, certainly enlarge your mind, save your soul isn't bad either if you can get if you can do it. But whatever larger purpose, teach them how to read and write and count and think, helps them develop reliable standards of right and wrong. I remember that from way back when, like 40 years ago. Uh, that still seems a pretty good idea, right? Yeah, uh,
1: you yeah, know, I think, you know, one of those one of these problems is education has become such a tool, such a toy for so many advocates, so many ed school kind of, Uh you know, agenda driven Uh folk that we've lost this distinction between means and ends. What I'm talking about in the rethink is rethinking how do we equip students to master essential skills, to be prepared, to be Uh citizens of a Republic, Uh uh, to develop their gifts. For me, this re what we have done is we have been busy watching a whole bunch of folks in ed schools and foundations, uh, Take aim at eternal truths, and then want to simply keep the the machinery of schooling intact, maybe with a lot more money and a lot more regulation.
0: Okay, okay, okay. Now, how big a deal uh, in terms of the rethink uh, was COVID and the lockdown?
1: Huge, huge. And that's kind of what prompted me to write this book. Is a lot of the ideas in here um, are things that you know some of us have been talking about, arguably for the better part of this century. Um, But there's been a fundamental change. When we've talked about school reform, arguably really since the nation at risk, um, it's been something that folks have been trying to do from Washington, from state capitals, from foundations, uh, these capital letter reform agendas, Uh, race to the top, no child left behind. What's different, I think, right now is you saw public confidence in schools was fundamentally rattled when parents were watching their kids do lessons on the kitchen table. I, I think, you know, you got as much of this as I did, I'm sure, from parents. I had no idea they were doing so little work. I yeah. had no idea that it was so boring. I had yeah. no idea that teachers were so... And so what happened was I think you saw a fundamental fundamental change uh, in the degree to which parents are saying, oh, yeah, you guys have got that under control. And so I think what uh-huh. you've done, both on the parent side and then on the educator side, uh-huh. because educators felt like they were thrown to the wolves in so many schools and systems is you've got an appetite to think differently that just hasn't been there, I think, for most of the last two or three decades. So for yes. the first time in my professional life, I think we're looking at an appetite for school change that's actually coming from communities and parents and schools, rather than one that's being driven by folks, you know, on the coasts.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's very good. No, I, I, I've i been asked a couple of times, uh-huh. you know, what do you think is the biggest change that's occurred, most important? I said, I I really think this major involvement of parents, Mm -hmm. which I think was was COVID related. I I love the way you. What's the name of that uh, meteor that wiped out the dinosaurs? (laughs) Can you pronounce it? I can't. I
1: can't. That's one of those things I leave in the book.
0: (laughs) All right, sixty five million years ago, is that right? But I mean, it was it was kind of a meteor. It struck in all sorts of reactions from parents, and parents are now, at least in many places very big players. I wanted to ask you that. We see these parent groups, we see on TV, parent meetings, go to school boards. Is this something just here and there or is this something more general, parental interest, involvement, engagement?
1: Uh, you know, I mean, th- that is such a great question. and it, We get such a distorted uh, lens because what we see is the stuff that goes viral or makes it to social media. Right, right. Um, look, you know, heaven forbid any of the nation's 20,000 ed researchers would actually be out there studying and trying to understand parents and parent engagement in a serious way. Um, but look, I think, I think this is something fundamentally different. I think moms for Liberty, um, which I think we both respect is, you know, the, the the biggest example of this and what's what, you know, what tells you how different it is, is that all of these left leaning foundations who have been trying to invest in parent advocacy for the last two decades and all of these folks who claim to value uh, parent involvement in schooling, are now screaming from the rooftops about how terrible and scary Moms for Liberty is. And I think that, to me, <laughs> without having great on-the-ground metrics, tells me that they are engaged in a way that is discombobulating to a lot of uh, the usual suspects. Um, And I think that's, I okay. think that's a sign that that, that, that something fundamentally different is happening.
0: Is it good? Is it a good thing? Yes, absolutely. Okay. We're talking to Frederick uh, M. Hess. I call him Rick Hess because he lets me. The book uh, is the uh, Great The Great School Rethink. Uh, let's Let's continue to talk about parents. Uh, one of the things you point out in your book is that uh, i found this so interesting. Is you said sometimes parents uh, really do know better. Uh, we We find this out through some examples or studies of school choice that you get better results for kids when parents have more say in what schools their kids attend because parents know something about what fits their kids or, or what else, you know what I'm after.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's this terrific, fascinating study out of London. They looked at, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of families and in London, they have what we think of as public school choice. They're choosing among the city schools. Um, and they use those league tables. They've got all these test scores. And, you know, so these they've got algorithms that will assign kids to school based on trying to maximize the test scores. What, what they found was that when parents were making choices which overrode the test score based assignment, you would think that their kids would do worse because they were going to schools with lower test scores than they might have got. And what it turned out was they actually overperformed and the only sensible conclusion the researchers could walk away with was you know what just possibly parents know something about their children that doesn't get picked up in an algorithm that's all about matching test scores
0: yeah and uh you know the old thing i used to say but you filled it in with this you know uh every parent's a teacher not every teacher's a parent uh, you know I, I mean they they are teachers and they know something about the teaching of their kids that's valuable and yeah, that we yeah. haven't we haven't taken advantage of. Go ahead.
1: No, that's right. And I think this takes us back to the pandemic, too. I mean, it, you know, you probably remember just months before the pandemic, a Harvard law professor, Elizabeth Barthollet wrote this screed about how we have to outlaw homeschooling. Again, it used to be illegal until about 40 years ago. We have to re-outlaw uh, homeschooling because parents are uh, dominating and bullying their children. I mean, it was insane at any time. It was especially insane two months later when the nation schools said to every parent, Hey, we need you on homeschooling. Yeah. And one of the things yeah. I think that brought home to everybody. That's interesting. Parents yeah. and non-parents was, you know, it turns out that parents are the people that teachers are counting on to make sure the kid does the homework. That's the right. parent is the kid who's there to troubleshoot. The parents gotta be the one who does, you know, figures out the IT and when the Chromebook's not working or helps the kid bind the report. And this idea that somehow schools can pick and choose when to involve parents, and that parents will still be effective and involved and supportive is just nuts. If you want parents to do what they have to do for kids, schools have to actively look to parents as valued partners, and too many schools have gotten out of that habit.
0: That's very interesting. I hadn't thought about that. It's very interesting. So that the pandemic really, uh, in effect, uh, said uh, to parents or or, or had educators saying to parents, you're all homeschoolers now, right? Uh, Everybody gets to homeschool (laughs) with the pandemic. Kind of legitimized homeschooling Mm -hmm. uh, and validated it. We also know homeschool results are pretty good, right? Absolutely. There was some I think it must have been thirty years ago report the, the you know kind of a revolutionary moment when I think twelve homeschool students got into Stanford. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. I'm older than you are, but um, everybody everybody made a lot out of it. Holy smokes, how did that happen? Well, it happened because these kids were you know were very good and uh, very talented, knew a lot, did very well in all the usual in all the usual ways. I want to stay with this parents thing, right? Because. it's, such an interesting part of your book. Uh, in addition to parents knowing something about their kids and what they'll learn, you also point out, and boy, is this, uh, this true, that uh, parents' uh, expectations or desires of school may not be the same uh, as the people who work there, uh, that uh, p- parents may be wishing for, hoping for, wanting uh, different things than uh, the educators. Uh, think they should have. I remember um, the book I did way back when with John Cribb and Checker Finn, the educated child. We said that we had a lot of advice in there. <laughs> we said, What well, we said to parents is, uh, you know, go to your school and, and meet the teacher and say, you know, what, what are the objectives in this class? What are the, you know, what are you hoping to ch- accomplish and how are you going to get there? And parent, a lot of parents wrote us back and said, tried that. And the teacher said, don't you worry, you just go home. We'll take care of it. Uh, Yeah. And they said, gee, you know, we kind of were hoping to get an answer, but um, they should get an answer. But how how big is that divide between what parents think schools should do and what the professional educators think they should do?
1: Uh, It's huge. Um, And, 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 you know, it's funny that some of the folks um, who I really love on parental, on the parental rights movement, Um, want it to be entirely a one way story um, that it's all about schools, elbowing parents. I don't think that's quite right. Um, We just talked about how it's crucial that parents be involved and how it's a real problem when parents aren't invited in. But um, one of the things I talk about in the book was that years ago, uh, 30, you know, 30 years ago, when I used to student, you know, when I used to supervise student teachers in Boston, it was no problem to find a teacher who would say, I can't teach that kid, you know, or would tell a student teacher, look, those kids, if you just keep them in line, you're doing you're doing great. And that was a problem. <laughs> that was a big problem, because the job of an educator is to edu- is to at least fight to educate all the children in their care. Um, and I think we had a wonderful bipartisan uh, success in this country over the nation at risk era when we changed the culture of schools. Um, you, when you hear teachers say something like that today, I can't teach that kid, they whisper it in the parking lot. We fundamentally changed expectations for what it means to be an educator in this country. But the flip side of that is I think, and especially I think this is true with our friends on the left, uh, is the part of doing this was they said, you're not allowed to blame parents or kids ever. So if the kid's not learning, it's the school's fault. Uh, if the kid's not showing up, it's the school's fault. Um, if the homework's not getting done, it's the school's fault. And so I think what you find today is that parent, is parents, teachers and principals and superintendents, in my experience, are scared to death to talk um, seriously with parents about we got to do our job. When we're not doing our job, absolutely, you should light us up. But a parent's job has got to be to take away that iPhone at nine o'clock at night and tell the kid sit down and do your homework. A parent's gotta say, you gotta get a good night's sleep and you gotta be at school on time. A parent's gotta say, when you get uh called into the principal's office for disciplinary trouble, I'm backing up the dis- I'm backing up the principal. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think yeah. we've
1: got, unfortunately, uh, we've gotten into a culture on the home front where too many parents are not not doing their half of the equation and are just kind of then content to blame the schools and look. If I take my kid to the pediatrician and the pediatrician says, Rick, you know, Blake's been eating too many Fritos, and the first thing I do is I go home and I open a bag of Fritos and give them to him, doesn't mean I got a bad doctor. It means my doctor's got to do her job, but I also got to do mine.
0: Yeah, fair enough. We're talking to Fred Hess, Frederick Hess. uh, The book is The Great School Rethink. A couple more questions, Rick, and thank you for the time. Um, What about school boards? You know, where the rubber meets the road, where, you know, this, this, where, where, where teachers and are not teachers where the where the uh, the the educators are represented to some degree by a school board. Parents come to these meetings again. We've seen these anecdotally sometimes even break down. I remember when I was giving speeches on education, people said, "What can we do? What can we do?" You know, I I said I would say, "Run for the school board," and they'd laugh and say, <laughs> "Well, that's nothing." Uh, well, it isn't nothing, and that, that's been shown. I mean, because we do, I think have a degree of focus on school board, school board elections that I've never seen. Um, And this uh, school boards are the place where one of the places where the rubber hits the road, right? Absolutely.
1: Uh, And I think there's two parts to this here. Go ahead. Is you've got a lot of uh, school boards, uh, which are benignly tuned out. So even if you've got the kinds of people that I think you and I want to see on school boards, um, they don't even know all of the crazy stuff that's going on in their district yeah. um, to gender or how they're teaching history or the lack of homework that's being assigned um, or how they're how the school district is cutting out families. Just the boards, just this stuff doesn't come to their attention. So part of it is training and supporting board members to ask the right questions. They, they're not they're not supposed to manage schools hands on. They're supposed to govern the management of schools. But to be a good board member. You need to ask hard questions. You need to ask to see the data. You need to be involved as far as you're supposed to be. And we've had too many who haven't, you know, haven't received the training or support to do that. And then the second thing um, is, you know, back over a century ago, uh, we moved school board elections in this country off cycle. So they don't happen in November. They happen uh, some random Tuesday in in April. And they're nonpartisan. So nobody knows who they're voting for. So you wind up with 6% turnout, and most of the people who turn out are people who work for the school district, the teacher unions and the staff and the rest. So school board elections become a way for them to select their bosses. And I think one of the really important things we've seen with groups like Mom for Liberty, with an outfit like Parents Defending Education, uh, is both an effort to mobilize uh, folks to run for school boards, pressure in the legislature to say, wait a minute, let's make school board elections partisan and let's do them when we vote for governor so that people are showing up and getting heard. And I think you're seeing attention to giving them the supports and the materials uh, that that equip them to do their job.
0: Uh, I'm maybe on a five-minute lag, but I'm back to where you were. I I agree with what you just said. I'm back to where you were on the teachers and parents. Look, um, parents have to do their job right. Absolutely right. But they need to give teachers room and some degree of trust to do their job. But for them to give them that trust to do their job, they have to kind of trust the enterprise in full, don't they?
1: Yeah, and this is a huge part of the problem. You know, Los Angeles was, my I think, one of the most telling examples of this. Um, When the schools closed in L.A. and they did a MOU, a memoranda of understanding with the teacher union, what they said was, we're going to keep paying you every dollar of salary, median salary in L.A., in the 90s average teacher payout there's in the 90s we said you're going to still get every dollars coming to you even though schools are closed and we're going to say a full work day is three and a half hours three to three and a half hours like what what the heck were we thinking like it's fine to say to teachers you don't have to go into schools because the schools are closed but we should have said part of your job is to get on email or text or yeah. phone with each yeah. of your kids and their families and check in each day and i think so what's happened here? is we have gotten this broken trust. And I think parents, for good reason, feel like their schools are pulling one over on them, that they're pushing agendas because some DEI consultant at Harvard or Berkeley dreamed it up and got paid 10 grand a day to come intimidate the staff. And now the schools are doing this without checking in with parents.
0: And and do you think, again, let, let me interrupt again, You know, how much distortion is introduced by, you know, the media and social media, um, things we want to highlight. Is trust broken between parents and teachers in most schools? Um, I think it's attenuated, not broken. So, you know,
1: one of the things you and I both know is that since the late 60s, we've asked this question, what grade would you give your kids school? Mm -hmm. And 77, it's like Congress, 75 percent of parents will give you an A or a B for their kid's school, uh, but they tend to give the nation schools just like they tend to give Congress much lower marks. Um, I think what we have seen, though, and that hasn't changed a lot post-pandemic, parents still generally like their kids' school and their kids' teachers. Um, But I think underneath the surface there, you see many more parents say schools are heading in the wrong direction. You say many more parents expressing concern about what their schools when it comes to teaching American history, or when it comes yeah, to yeah, policies yeah. regarding, say, to gender. So I don't know that the distrust is in, you know, Mrs. Um, Smith, your kid's fourth grade teacher, but I think Mrs. Smith is working in an environment where parents have less just comfort saying, "Yeah, I trust that those experts know what they're doing." Uh, then was then has long been the case.
0: Okay, they're not. Yeah, they're not ready to let, uh, put all their money in that bank, right? Yeah, they're, they're not ready to give all their trust uh, to to the to that institution. But that has to be restored, and for it to be restored, Rick, it has to be earned, right? Mm-hmm. And it's earned by openness, by results, by willingness to meet and engage with parents. I mean, I, is 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 the system isn't broken? I take it you're saying it's not broken. It's hurt. It's, broken. it's damaged. You know, I
1: think Bill Bill Gates gave a, a what I always thought was a terrific speech to the national governors back in 05. He said the American high school's obsolete. By obsolete, he said, I don't mean that like it's broken. He says, he he said, I mean that we're asking it to do things that it wasn't designed to do. And I think part of the challenge here, so the, the 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 things you just flagged, I think, are exactly the kinds of things schools need to transparency. Uh, We talk about letting parents see what's in the school curriculum. Teachers already have to file lesson plans. We've got to be respectful and not create new paperwork burdens on teachers. But when teachers are already filing materials, there's no earthly reason not to let parents see, here's what kids studied. Here's what they read last year. So that parents know what to anticipate, um, the results—the results we've seen, not just during pandemic, but over the last decade—have been absolutely dismal in reading, and math, and civics, and U.S. history. Um, and yet, yeah. when Rand, yeah. when the Rand teacher panel, when Rand asked teachers what's the most important thing uh, for kids to learn in civics, just twenty-one percent of teachers said America's political, social, or economic system. 27 percent, when asked about civics, said climate change. Uh, I think these are the signals are yeah. getting in their trainings, in their preparation. Uh, and these are the kinds of things that break trust. Because when you ask most parents, what do you want your kid to learn in civics? They say, I want them to learn how this country works. And let's argue about particular climate change policies. That's fine. But that's not why I send my kid to ninth or 10th grade.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. You know, so a, a, a young couple uh, we met was talking to us and said, well, you know, we don't know about, you know, whether to send our kids to public school or not. But Mr. Bennett, you know, you you should be an expert. In, are these schools broken? I said, well, you know, I, I said, I, and maybe the fashion for some conservatives to say, you know, geez, they're all terrible uh, and they're all disappointing to parents. I said, "But I feel a little, little bit about it, like I feel about impeachment really? Do we have to impeach everybody? Really? Uh, You know, we didn't, we only did one, you know, the 19th century. And now, you know, like a president, we impeach him anyway. um, uh, I I said, I look, something tells me that most schools operate reasonably well uh, and do a reasonably good job. But I, I, I guess I may just be wrong about that. I got yeah, look at the i got look at the results thing. i got to look at the results that you're telling me to look at u s history you know my my area um it's terrible it's awful and yeah. now reading and math it's awful
1: and we're about right i mean you know you were so instrumental in where we in our ability to look at these things through nape and when you look at the nape scores yeah, now, you're like, my yeah. goodness we're roll we're rolling we're rolling the boulder back down the them.
0: Oh, NAEP's important a... right i just want to pause national yeah. assessment of educational progress and is the NAEP in danger i i hear that NAEP uh, is in danger of being politicized and going it, left it,
1: it, and... It, it, it is um partly oh. because you know there is such uh you know you, I'm, I'm sure you you know i'm sure you and probably many of the listeners are familiar with what's happening with california math frameworks where california for instance wants to eliminate all advanced math classes um up yeah. to these state Um, And you've seen the same thing with reading. So there is an entire arm of folks in the reading business who really want to make reading about, um, you know, intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Rather than about mastery of literacy. Fortunately, the folks in charge of NAEP were able to beat that back. But um, it's something that we do need to keep our eyes on. Look, I think one way to square kind of the circle that you're talking about, we see these. Troubling results, um, but it doesn't. But but it does feel um, nihilistic to suggest that these schools that we've built over time are just totally dysfunctional. That's not what parents. That's not what lots of parents think. I don't think that's what lots of voters think. I think part of this is this: um, parents have a lot on their plates, and for a very long time. If they took their kid to the school bus and the kid got on the bus and was at school all day and came home at 3.30 and seemed to be in good spirits and had some friends and seemed to be learning some stuff, most parents said, "Okay, I trust that you've got this under control. Yeah. And they just didn't look much harder. And I think what's changed the last few years is parents were forced to look much deeper and they've seen a lot of stuff that had been there for a very long time but hadn't risen to their attention. And the question is, how do we fix this? I don't think just throwing more money at schools or hiring more bodies is going to fix it. And so in some sense, what this book is about is really saying, you know what? Rather than more grand solutions from on high,
0: yeah. maybe we've yeah. got to ask,
1: what are we doing with the time? You know, what are we doing all day? What's happening at that time? Are there smarter ways to use the talented educators that we've got and to turn not so talented educators into perfectly functional, productive staff.
0: Do you think most teachers are, you know, talking about the world in general, I know you haven't been to every school in America, but I, I remember reading Eric Hanishek, you know, his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's done a lot of very important work and talks about, you know, the terrible cost of horrible education and now we can do better better. And then I, I read, he said, you know, he said, I think the average, average teacher is probably pretty okay. Pretty much okay. Uh, i give him a B. Uh, now, we got to get rid of the F teachers because they do more harm. But he said i give him a B. Would you give him a B? Do you, do you think most teachers are up to it? Um, or-
1: no. Um, I think no. Most, You're not B sure. is probably generous. I think okay. You know, okay. we've, we've got three and a half million teachers. Um, one out of every ten college-educated adults in the workforce is a teacher. Um, there's just not that many talented people in America, in any yeah.
0: organization. Um so I don't and know, and if you I mean, and if you are talented, you can move on to something else and make more money, right? And make more.
1: So you know, I mean, so so I, I don't know. I mean, I I, I think this notion okay. that teachers are a problem or terrible is nuts. But you know, I think listeners should keep in mind that over the last say half century, we've added teachers about twice as fast as we've added students, and so we've had to spread all of that money to hire a lot more teachers. Heck, since uh, No Child Left Behind. We've added. We've added. Students have grown five percent, and central office administrators have grown ninety-three percent. Yeah. If we had just kept, for instance, to Hanishek's point, teachers relative to the students the same rate, and put every penny we spent adding new teachers into just increasing teacher pay, um, we would today have median national teacher pay of about one hundred and forty thousand dollars a teacher. Yeah. Um, then I think we would have an all-star teacher force, and we could ask teachers to do more because we could be more selective and they would feel valued. So I don't know that teachers aren't up to it. I think there's lots of great teachers out there, but we've chosen a model which is all about quantity, not about quality, and we get what we pay for.
0: You're familiar with what's called the Massachusetts miracle, right? Yep. The success of Massachusetts there, uh, turn of the century. Is that right? Yeah. I think that's about right. Uh, they were doing that weren't they i mean they were they were it was kind of two sides they said i remember correct me if i'm wrong we want to test you all and you're not like that but we'll hold you accountable but we're going to pay you a lot too um and and a series of things like that held them to high standards but made them accountable but paid them more and Somehow got a lot more respect for them. I guess because they were getting such great results. Wasn't Massachusetts like tenth in the world or something? Uh, at its at its high point, they did it right. And, and and what else did they do? And why did we lose it? Why Why wasn't that replicated?
1: Well, you know, and some of it was. They, you know, you're exactly right. I think the uh, the foundation of it was they had that bipartisan push, um, and it was about ninety two, ninety three. Yeah. And it was high standards. Um, this was when, you know, it somehow the folks on the left were OK saying that we believe in rigor and excellence. And so they got high standards in Massachusetts. Um, they got uh, strong annual testing. Um, you know, also, Massachusetts is a pretty good teacher labor market. You've got a yeah. lot of colleges pumping out smart people, which just makes it an easier recruitment challenge in a place like Massachusetts. Uh, Than some other states, and I think what happened over the next 15, 20 years uh, was one it started to get taken for granted, and then as the Democratic Party started to fracture, kind of into the Obama administration on these issues, it was yeah. harder and harder for them to to to, to hold this together uh, in a blue state.
0: You're helping it to come back to me. I mean, <laughs> you're right. Rare things happened. You know, perfect not perfect storm, perfect sunrise. <laughs> Uh, Bill Weld and John Silber, who had opposed each other for governor, worked together, Mm -hmm. right? Weld was the governor and asked Silber to put this thing together. And then in the legislature, Tom Buckingham, who was a very outspoken, radical leftist. He was wise student, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, may may I be forgiven or may he be he didn't he didn't he didn't take notes. I don't know, whatever. But um you know, but he was all for it. And he was this really smart guy, you know, out of Harvard. And he you know, he had his left wing stuff, but he was for absolutely for high standards and all these other things happened. And you said very something very important there, Rick. You said they things they started to take it for granted so you, so you got to keep a watchful eye on this and that's part of what you're saying right mm-hmm. every day look at it every day every week every month um yeah 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 all right um the book um uh, you've been very generous with your time i think i told you 20 minutes and we've gone <laughs> over it's the a great school man,
1: every minute with you is a pleasure bill
0: what else? What else? What am I missing? What, what do you give us one last thing you want the listeners who are let's assume they're not teachers, educators, they're parents uh, to, to go away with. What do you want them to do? What do you want them to think? We'll ask them to think about the book by getting at the great school rethink. But what else?
1: Well, I think we've talked. you know, normally I would have come back to this question of what parents need to do the role of school boards. But let's actually something we haven't talked much about, which I think you and I both find interesting which is the role of technology here. Um, Because I think you find people being uh, unserious on both sides of the technology question. There are the Luddites who say, oh, this stuff will never help, this stuff doesn't have anything to do with learning. But the bigger problem is the West Coast Foundation tech optimists who are like, AI is going to tutor every child and this is going to fix everything. And look, I, I, I think The the most practical common sense thing uh, for your listeners, um, especially who are parents coming out of this, is think about uh, what happened with kids and technology during the pandemic. They watched their kid at the kitchen table sit for two hours like they were in a hostage video. Their camera was off. They were muted, watching some teacher who had no training yammer at them endlessly in a confusing fashion. Uh, This was not just the opposite of education, it was utterly dehumanizing. It took yeah. the things that make kids interested and, inter- and make school interesting and connect kids to one another and strip them all out. And the opposite of that, if somebody wants to see technology used really well in a school, I always encourage that they go watch a really good high school football team practice. Because 30 or 40 years ago, when you were coaching a high school football team, The coach would stand at a chalkboard or a whiteboard, and they would draw all the X's and O's, and the kids would sit there in rows and try to watch this and take notes, and it was hard to see it, and it would get confusing, and then the coach would erase and draw another. When you watch the kids learn their plays today, they've all got an iPad or a Chromebook. The coach has uh, all of the plays. You can actually watch them unfold. You rewind. You can talk about what you're seeing while you're seeing a move. Then you go out to the field. And if a coach tells a kid, hey, you got to hold your hands this way, the coach can whip out an iPhone, take 10-second video, show the kid what they're doing, talk. This is conversation. It's feedback. It's modeling. It's reflection. It's mentoring. It's all of the things that make a dynamic school experience, except that kids get, spend less time being bored less time watching a teacher write on a chalkboard and more time getting real access to seeing what they're doing. That's what technology looks like. It humanizes a schoolhouse. And the real trouble is 30 or 40 years into bringing computers into schools, we still are barely baby steps into figuring out how to do this well.
0: Yeah, good. And that example of your coach, it's in person, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And and, and the technology should be, quote, in person as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, wasn't it interesting that we found out during the pandemic how much school is good for kids? <laughs> I mean, mental, mental health, mm-hmm. their well-being, their, their their sense of optimism. You know, they all wanted to All the kids I saw interviewed, they all said, I want to see my friends. Mm-hmm. I don't remember many saying I miss my teachers, but OK. <laughs> you know, a few did. But they wanted to be with their friends. And they wanted to be at that place. There's still something right about that place, isn't there? You know,
1: I mean, we're we're social creatures.
0: Yeah, um, we. Yeah. we yeah. The and they are and, particularly, aren't they? They are particularly.
1: Yeah, they. It's, but, but, but you know, and you know, and that's that. That's one of the things that you know. What's one thing your a listener can do who's a parent? Uh, average teen today is spending about eight hours a day on devices. About five hours of that gaming and social media. Yeah, yeah. They're getting no. bullied. They're getting ostracized. Tweens are spending five to six hours a day. parents need to get in the habit of if you're going to a i would recommend not giving kids a smartphone there's a list of dumb phones if they need to call you don't give them a smartphone until they're at least 14 um i know there's pressure fight it if you're going to give it to them take that phone away at eight o'clock nine o'clock at night plug it into charge by your bed and give it back to them in the morning when you think they should have it um parents have got to stop <laughs> giving <laughs> kids these devices as if, you know, imagine a parent giving the kid the keys to the car when they turn 12 and saying, take the car when you need it. This is a uh, powerful, dangerous technology. Parents have got to be involved in their children's lives when it comes to these phones.
0: Oh, I have so much respect for you, but I'll tell you, mama, don't take my Kodachrome. I mean, I, you really want to really wrestle. You really, you know, there was that horrible, so illustrative, though horrible, horrible accident—not accident, a crime scene in Washington. Remember these two young girls, like thirteen, mm-hmm. carjacked uh, an Uber or Lyft driver, mm-hmm. an immigrant guy who was, you know, doing it for his family, and they and they took it, and he was hanging on, hanging out, and they crashed against the wall. You know, it killed him. And when they arrested these two girls. The girl's just wouldn't say anything just kept screaming I want my phone I want my phone. They just killed somebody. Right? But that's but that's the place this has in the mind of a, of a lot of these kids. It's a, well you, you know you're right, you're right. Well when our guys were growing up uh, Mrs. Bennett said she not the secretary of education said <laughs> <laughs> uh no TV I think no TV during the week. I said, "Oh, really?" You're going to, are you going to enforce that. <laughs> well, we, you know, we put it down, you know, something it worked because we meant it and we said, go outside. Parents can do that, which you just recommended, Rick. They can do that and they need to be mindful of it. And so many other things in your book, I we've kept you way over. Thank you, Rick Hess, the great school rethink. Very good. To talk to you. And all your, all your important work that you're doing there. You guys are a real fountainhead of wisdom and uh, kind of a center american research where you go to find out what's going on in education uh it's really the cern program is great tell everybody what it stands for i can't remember uh,
1: the conservative education reform network that's uh, it folks, folks should feel free to reach out um if they're interested
0: great thank you rick thanks very much
1: hey pleasure to be with you bill thank yeah man
0: thank you. you well claude that does it for today's show pretty interesting show mm-hmm to catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to the Bill Bennett Show.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.